I'm turning now to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and verse 14. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 14. And when he, Christ, came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And our subject is the true condition of all those who are unsaved. Now Peter and James and John had been with Christ up a great hill or mountain where Christ was transfigured before them. An astonishing experience for those disciples. Leaving nine elsewhere. And now they descend Christ and the three that were with him, and they rejoin the other nine disciples. And they find here that the scribes are taunting them. And they're taunting them, at least that's what it appears they're doing, and quizzing them about the fact that they had failed to heal a demon-possessed and also epileptic youth. And uh, the scribes were trying to find fault with Christ and with the disciples on this account. The people, when they saw Christ, ran and gathered round him. And we read, he asked the scribes, what question you with them? And then in verse 17 of Luke, of Mark chapter 9, one of the multitude answered and said, Master, and that's significant, his form of address, master, teacher. He didn't call him Lord. He didn't seem to realize that he was Messiah. He obviously thought he was a man with great powers given by God, perhaps a prophet. He had no doubt heard others say he was the Messiah, but he didn't take that term on his lips or any equivalent term. He said, master, He's respectful, but he places him no higher. The Gospel of Luke uses the term master too in the parallel record. Master, he addresses him. Well, the exception is the Gospel of Matthew that says that the man said, Lord. But I think it's fairly clear that in the Gospel of Matthew, the parallel record of this event, which is extremely short is using the word Lord uh, kind of with uh, hindsight, looking back at the account, and it doesn't distinguish at all between the terms that the men use because it's a truncated and general account. I think we can take it from the fact that we have Master in Mark and Luke, longer accounts, more uh, precise accounts, that this was actually what the man said. Master, and I'll show the significance in a moment, I have brought unto thee my son. Luke tells us it was his only son, which hath a dumb spirit. He was demon-possessed. Matthew's Gospel uses an interesting word. He calls him a lunatic which translates the Greek, which means something like moonstruck. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the correct term to use, lunatic, because this moonstruck term, lunatic, can be used quite generally. 
And in Matthew's Gospel, it's used twice. It's a little bit technical. It's used twice as part of a precise description of an epileptic. So the lunatic word takes on the epileptic symptoms and sense. That's how the word works. So when Matthew calls him a moonstruck boy, he means that in very general terms. It's the term he uses for an epileptic boy. And those are certainly the symptoms described here in Mark's Gospel. But he was demon-possessed. Now bear in mind that the New Testament does not use the term demon possession as a kind of ignorant explanation of other illnesses. Demon possession in the New Testament is very exactly described and is quite distinctive from other illnesses. You may be demon possessed and also at the same time have other illnesses and impediments and diseases. But it isn't mix, these things are not mixed up. In fact, the demon possession may give rise to the other things in those cases. But demon possession is a specialized, distinctive, and quite precisely described condition in the New Testament. And there would appear to have been quite a lot of demon possession, an increase of it, in the world of those days prior to the coming of Christ. We're talking, of course, here, just briefly, about uh, involuntary demon possession. People becoming demon-possessed who do not seem to have invited this condition, who had not been meddling with the powers of darkness and evil forces and so on, and extreme occultism involuntary demon possession. And one of the great benefits, according to the New Testament, of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ, is that he ended involuntary demon possession for all. So there was no more after Christ. It doesn't appear after Christ. And he said he had come to cast out the demons. So bear that in mind. You only have demon possession today if somebody is knee-deep in, in dark arts and occult uh, practices and spiritism and so on. It is possible for a person to put themselves into a condition where they can be subject to demonic activity. But here... It was clearly involuntary. And the father of the boy is deeply distressed naturally. And uh, verse 17, he describes it. One of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wherever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth. And then afterwards subsides into total listlessness and won't eat and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples. He brought the youth. He's obviously more than a child now. He's described as a child in all three records. And yet the man subsequently says he's been like this since childhood. 
So he's not an adult, but neither is he strictly a child, although he has that description. So what would he be? I imagine 15, 16, 17 would seem likely. Of such an age, you'd say he's been like this since childhood, and yet he is still a child. So that's a guess. He brought him to Christ, and Christ wasn't there at the time. He was with Peter and James and John elsewhere, and the remaining nine disciples couldn't cast out that demon and restore that youth. Now they'd been given the power to do so by Christ, and they'd been on two missions by this stage, around the villages and the towns, where like Christ himself, they had been healing people and casting out demons. So why could they not do it here? Were those powers that they had been given only temporary for those missions? Or did they simply fail in this case? The narrative implies that they failed. Because when they later asked the Lord, why could not we cast him out? The reply of the Lord was that this sort, this kind, only comes out by prayer and fasting. In other words, the person who's going to heal this boy has got to be very serious and very intently engaged in prayer for him. And that's the only way. Here is an obdurate and a difficult case. I spake to thy disciples and that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now Christ then says these words, and these words trouble people a little. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. In what way does he say those words? Well, I think, frankly, softly, and uh, in a distressed way, because here was the perfect, holy Son of the living God, equal with the Father, the second person of the triune Godhead, come into this fallen, sin-sick world. And the whole environment was, to him, something painful because of his purity, surrounded by sin. And then the scribes, the clergy of the day, have been taunting the disciples. They're against him. How painful was that, O oh, faithless generation. What he means is this, really. Faithless mankind, fallen from the favor of God, fallen into sin and rebellion, living now under the judgment of God in this world in turmoil, faithless. And it's because of the fall of man that conditions like this were in the world. All sin, all suffering, all sickness is due to the fall of man. He fell from the favor of God he rebelled against God, and now he's under the discipline of God. 
And that's where all this comes from, human sin. But that generation was particularly unbelieving. Christ had come. He works his mighty miracles. The crowds want the healings and the miracles, but they don't want him. The clergy of the day reject him out of hand. Everybody except his disciples is against him. Faithless people will not pray, will not look to God, will not bow the knee to him. And because of that, society has no power at all to deal with such things. Cannot pray, cannot call upon God for help. Oh, faithless generation. Think of our generation. I'm not here to talk about this, but this is a conspicuously unbelieving generation. Present society hasn't always been as bad as this, where the vast majority of people and even our leaders, our politicians, believe nothing, never pray, never worship hold in scorn the things of God and the soul and eternity. It's a conspicuously unbelieving evil generation. Does this verse not hint that at such a time, in such a generation, difficulties upon earth of a purely physical kind, temporal kind, will grow worse? Oh, faithless generation how long shall I be with you is that not saying because this is a particularly unbelieving rejecting generation things are bound to be worse for you we should not be surprised but that's not our point this evening bring him unto me says the Lord I'm expounding I'm going through the verses verse 20 They brought him unto him. And when this demonized, epileptic youth saw Christ, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. How this resembles us. You may not think so at first sight, but never forget that all these miracles depict salvation. Christ is doing them out of a compassionate heart. He's demonstrating the heart and the love of God. He is healing this person and that person. But the way in which he heals and performs his compassionate miracles also illustrates the way in which he will work in us spiritually. Our spiritual ills and sicknesses and sins. And all the way through, this miracle shows us salvation. The moment this youth sees Christ, that demon tears him and he falls to the ground and wallows foaming. The symptoms illustrate the state of our unbelieving heart. Certainly mine, before I was converted. When anybody tried to talk to me about faith and about Christ and somebody about conversion, 
I ran a mile. The last thing I wanted. I thought frantically of every possible objection I could. Everything I knew which was against God and against Christ would come out. Sometimes I might be furious. I didn't see it. But how closely I was depicted by this demonized youth. The frenzies. We often have that. Fits of anger against God. Unbelief. Frustration at having even to think about him. Resistance and rejection of him. The frenzies of the epileptic and demonized youth are our frenzies because the old life doesn't want to be disturbed. The sinful life doesn't want to be terminated. The sin within us doesn't want to be challenged. We don't want God. We don't want conversion. We don't want holiness. We don't want these things. And we turn them off furiously. And then we pine away. Then, once we've fiercely argued against faith and rejected these things, then we don't think about it at all. It's gone. We forget it. No activity in the soul. Nothing can challenge us. Our conscience doesn't challenge us if we fall into some sin. Should it cross our minds? Well, then what is life for? What am I here for? Where am I heading? That doesn't challenge. Oh, don't worry about that. That's silly thinking. Just dismiss it. We're not worried. We're in a languid, torpid kind of state once we've dismissed God and we pine away spiritually and forget all about it. This young man's trouble really does depict us. His uh, dangers. Why we read on in this passage a little later on, the father saying, Oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What an amazing amount, amount we read of in that verse. This young man tried to do away with himself. He rushed into fire, rushed into the river. His uh, relatives had to chase after him and grab him and hold him down. He couldn't hear them. He was deaf. He couldn't articulate what he felt and what he thought because he couldn't make words. He could scream, he could cry, but he couldn't make words. Such a sad and tragic condition. But he didn't realize the danger he was putting himself in constantly. And even that is true of us before we're converted, viewed spiritually. We don't realize what danger we're in. How constantly sin is getting its tentacles on us. We say, I want my moral liberty. I want to do as I want to do. I don't want laws of God. I don't want holiness. I... Yes, but so we tell lies, we make excuses, we act selfishly, 
We act proudly, very pleased with ourselves. We boast and misrepresent things in our favor and so on. Yes, and these things are getting worse and worse. Oh, they're not. They're not. I can control how I think and what I say. You can't. Ten years' time will be much worse than you are today. Much more firmly held by the life of sin. All the little liberties become medium-sized liberties, huge liberties. And if your problem is uncleanness, well, you get to be a thoroughgoing deviant with the passage of time. All these things increase their hold. And that young man is a picture of what happens. You're under the control of the sinful life, of the unbelieving life, the life away from God. Cynicism. I don't believe in God. I doubt this, I doubt that. I clutch hold of everything I hear which throws doubts upon God. Yes, but then your heart becomes a heart of stone and you can't help it and you can't reason anymore after a while. It's got control of you. You'll never soften or open up to the things of God. You've become a hard case. Everything gets worse. These are the dangers. And that young man in his life illustrates the dangers. This demonic power had got hold of him. Well, we are responsible for our conduct before God. He will hold us accountable. But in a sense, you also become a hapless, hopeless victim. Because unbelief and godlessness and serving ourselves gets hold of us and controls us, just like this poor youth's condition. And we know no authority over us. He didn't. You couldn't reason with him. You couldn't say, look, this is how society ought to be regulated. This is what you ought to, ought to do. He, he, there was no authority in his life. No control. Same with us. You see it every day on the television and in the news. The moral excesses of today. Now all the old rules of society and of humanity and of the Bible have been thrown away. You can do the opposite of everything that used to be regarded as decent and moral. And that's applauded and legalized. Everything is turned round. Just with this young man. There was no authority in his life. No authority in our lives, morally, spiritually. That's the cost and the danger of being away from God. Do you think of his anguish and his frustration? And as an unbeliever, well, you will be very frustrated by life. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. It has no destiny. Take pride. Just one example. Pride. Does it make all your decisions for you? Is everything you ever decide decided in your interests? Or selfishness? Does it control you? Or self-indulgence? You did this and that and the other for pleasure. Now, is it habitual? Is there an addiction? Do you desperately need all those indulgences? 
and you can't live without them? Or deceit. You started with a few excuses. But now, sometimes, you realize every time you open your mouth, you're saying something that's less than honest. Can you stop it? Can you cure it? No, it's going to get worse. So this demonized boy is a horrific picture, in a sense, of what happens to us in unbelief. We claim our moral liberty and our self-determination and we banish God and we come under control of the godless life completely. Well, this father brings the boy to Christ and he asks, if thou canst do anything, he doesn't yet believe entirely in the invincible power of Christ. He doesn't yet believe that he's Messiah. He's only master, teacher. He has respect. On the other hand, he does believe in his compassion. This is an extraordinary man. He spends all his time healing. He goes around as a relatively poor man. He never takes any payment. He doesn't require anything of you. He heals nevertheless. Morning, noon and night and is devoted to it. He has compassion. He has feeling. And the words of the father betray what he felt. If thou canst do anything, there's the doubt. Have compassion on us and help us. No doubt about his having compassion. That's taken for granted. If you can do it, then exercise the compassion we know you have. He almost says it that way. So he's a half-believer. He believes in the goodness of Christ, but he doesn't quite believe in his Godhead and his mighty power. And that helps us because we begin to feel our need by the grace of God that we do need God. There must be an explanation for life. There must be an eternal destiny. Our instinct certainly tells us so. And we realize that we need to come to God and to Christ. Who is he? Well, we only half know about him. We understand he has compassion, but what can he do? And what has he done? Verse 23, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, believe what? In the person of Christ, who he is. In the work of Christ, what he's done to save souls and to change lives in the willingness of Christ and his promises to help all who come to him. If you can believe in those things, who he is, God as well as man, the creator of all things, the only one who can come and help, what he's done, suffer and die on Calvary's cross to take himself the punishment due to all people who would ever be forgiven.
and given new lives, he took their eternal punishment for them. He suffered it as they ought to suffer it, compressed into a space of time, and believe in his willingness to help you. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you can believe in his person, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, his work, his atoning substitutionary death on Calvary's cross, his willingness, his call to save, and his sincere meaning in that call. If you can believe those things, he will help you and he can forgive you all your sin and he can give you new life and he can give you a connection, a relationship, a union with himself and he can be your Lord and your God and your helper and your sustainer and take you all the way to eternal glory with himself. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And verse 24, one of the greatest answers in the entire Bible. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, he meant it with every ounce of his being, Lord, What a difference. It's not master now. It's Lord, Messiah, God, Son of God, Savior. Lord, I believe. I believe in you. I believe in your promise. Help thou mine unbelief. When you come to Christ, the old life and the devil who is the enemy of your soul will do everything they can to keep the status quo. The old life doesn't want to leave you. The devil doesn't want to lose his grip on you. Hell doesn't want to forsake you and give you up. And these powers will make every effort. And as you draw near to Christ, you'll find yourself thinking the opposite of what you want. You'll find yourself thinking, do I want this? Should I do this? This will make me miserable. This will take me into the unknown and I'm afraid of it. This will mean a change in my life. This will mean I have to give up this sin and that sin. This will mean I have to serve the Lord and love him. This will mean I won't be able to be as boastful and as proud and as selfish and as ill-tempered. He'll take a lot of those things away from me. Do I want this? And it will struggle and it will cast doubt on everything you're thinking. You can't believe that. Believe with your friends that it's rubbish and it's nonsense. Don't go any further into this. That's what will happen. The doubts will come and the fears. 
The father of the vexed boy gave the perfect answer to Christ. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And it's a prayer that Christ will always answer. Lord, I want to come. I am coming. But I've got some doubts. Help me, Lord. And he will. He'll help you see through those doubts. He'll help you see them off. He'll help you come to him. I often use this illustration, but it's very remarkable to me. God helps us even if we ask him to give us the faith to believe. If you go down the high street, you will never see a shop that has in the window a notice which says, if you desire these goods and you can't afford them, come in and we'll help you pay for them. You'll never see that in a shop window. But that's what Christ says. If you're coming to me and you've got trouble or doubts or hesitation or anxiety or you don't feel you have enough faith, well, come to me and ask for it and I will give it to you. That is the mercy and the kindness of the Lord. Lord, help thou mine unbelief because you're trying to believe who he is, the eternal Son of God, what he's done, died on Calvary for sinners and his promises to receive all who come to him. When Jesus, verse 25, our time is up, saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. At a word, he transformed his life and in such a way that he would never fall back under the power of the demon and the old life and the old ways. He changed him. But verse 26, the spirit tried one last attempt to remain. The spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. He didn't want to go. The old life doesn't want to give you up. All the way to the place of repentance and prayer where you'll give yourself to Christ and ask him to save you and repent of your sin all the way to falling on your knees. The old life will be saying, don't go, don't go, come back, hold back. It doesn't want to let you go. It's got such power and hostility against you. It wants to devour you. And he was as one dead. Insomuch that people said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. 
and he arose. What a wonderful thing when you come to Christ and you know your sins are forgiven, your nature has been made new, you have union with Christ, God is your Father, you can pray and be heard, he is your helper in heaven, you are his and he is yours and all is now new and you're on the road, the pathway, the highway to heaven. That's the picture in the healing that was intended by the Lord. How much we need him, how much we must come to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, look upon us all and help us and bless us. May there be those who come from the old life into the love of Christ, into the knowledge of the Saviour, into the new life. Look upon us, Lord, in thy mighty power. Save and bless. We ask these things in our Saviour's name and for his sake. Amen.